0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bob Batchelor. Today, I'm with Jesse Cavadlo, an acclaimed literary professor and acclaimed musician, and we're going to talk about a wide range of subjects. And let me just tell you, I'm a longtime fan of Jesse. I think he's fascinating. We've worked together in the past. Um, We did a book... On Michael Chabon that was published actually in 2014, which seems like forever ago, and it actually was. But I'm so happy that Jesse uh, was able to join the show because, like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of him personally. I'm a f- huge fan and interested. He, We're both Gen Xers and very much equate to that mentality. So let's just dig right in. Jesse, I wonder if you could begin. Just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Thanks so much, Bob. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, we get to be members of the Mutual Admiration Society because I I think you're doing great work. Uh, You know, you, you are all over the place in terms of literature and Fitzgerald and Updike and superheroes and rock music and all the same stuff that I love too. So it's uh, it's great that we were able to, uh, to find each other. Yes, I'm Jesse Cavadlo. I'm a professor of English and humanities at Maryville University. Uh, I write very frequently about contemporary American literature, but like Bob, I also love popular culture and uh, love talking about it, love writing about it. Um, my path into higher ed is a little bit unusual in that my plan was completely to be a rock musician from when I was very young. I mean, pretty much around 11, I was sure that this was the path I was going to take. Uh, so in the mid to late 80s through around the mid 90s, I played in local original bands in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York area, which is where I grew up, where I'm from. Um, the plan was, again, to write my own music, play it, eventually you know, sing it, record it, become famous, the whole, you know, kind of uh, rock star deal. And I did stay in school and I did like school. You know, I, you know, school came pretty easily to me. And at some point while I was gigging and recording and waiting, you know, to get famous, I, I mean, I think the closest I came was uh, my band was rejected by Atlantic Records at some point in 1991. So, it was, you know, not, not close, but close-ish, adjacent to close. Um, at some point, I realized I kind of finished school. Like I had gone all the way through and had a PhD and had to actually, <laughs> that's how long it took for me to uh, get to uh, become a rock star. I figured I'll just stay in school until I'm a rock star. And then I ran out of school. Um, so then I really switched gears pretty dramatically into you know honing my higher ed persona and my teaching. And you know at this point, I'm also the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Maryville. But then about 10 years ago, when I felt a little bit more comfortable in my personal and professional life, I started playing again, this time not doing originals, this time doing all covers, classic rock covers. So now I'm, I'm playing in a 80s hairband tribute that is, uh, I want to say, I don't know if this is going to be sort of faint praise or real praise, but we are the most successful, biggest 80s rock tribute in the Missouri, Illinois, non-Chicago
0: area. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs>
1: so, uh, so again, uh, if, if that sounds good to you, then that's great. And if that doesn't, then uh, that, that's fine. But yeah, no, we, we, we play to audiences regularly in the multiple hundreds, which for me is uh, probably better than my originals uh, band was doing in the eighties uh, and nineties. Um, so it's been really great for me to get back into, you know, playing and playing the guitar the thing that's interesting to me that I, that I think you were alluding to when you're introducing me to is that my, my music side and my academic side didn't really cross over particularly. Like I am, I play completely by ear. I don't read music. I don't even read tablature. I mean, pretty much my favorite uh, guitar player joke is, you know, how to get a guitar player to stop playing, you know, put a piece of sheet music in front of them. I'm like, okay, that's, that hurts because it's true. Um, Whereas school obviously doesn't go that route, you know, like I'm completely, you know, acad- ensconced in university stuff. Um, so, it, so it is interesting for me. I also did try teaching guitar when I was a teenager because I was good at it and people asked me to, and I was not a good guitar teacher, um, mainly because I didn't know how to explain anything that I was doing. A lot of it was really felt felt very intuitive and came through my own exploration and practice. So when I did start teaching college classes, I kept that very much in mind, you know, like it's it's not about whether you're good at it or whether you're intuitive it's about whether you can actually lead people into it so that that relationship between uh music and my other you know professional career has always been interesting and really pretty close to the the, the top of the way i think about these things
0: oh well, that's great um That alone, I think we could probably spend uh, a good couple hours just speaking on the things you've said to this point. I will give you a couple questions, but one thing I think that just naturally comes up is is how much practice, because I've watched your solos that you've put up on Facebook. I know you play for your students. Now you're playing in this great band. How much practice did it take you to get to this point? I mean, was this like a a serious, serious focal point of your early life? Yeah, I mean,
1: I would say yes, but so yes, you know, starting from when I was a preteen, I took this very seriously. I did practice a lot. I was in bands through my whole, you know, teenage, early 20s. Um, We rehearsed, you know, at least six hours a week. And that was separate from my own individual practice time. On the other hand, and this is, you know, I you know about you know Malcolm Gladwell and the 10,000 hour stuff and how, you know, some people believe very strongly and other scholars have really challenged that. For me, what it's come down to, and this has been helpful for my teaching too, is that one of the reasons I was able to do that was because I enjoyed practicing. It never was work. Obviously, nobody told me to do this. If anything, people told me to stop doing this. Um, so I think that might be one of the big differences in general, you know, with, with musicians or, or people who, you know tend to spend a lot of time working on this is that it never felt like work. It only ever felt like fun. And even now I still, you know, whenever I can, I, you know, love to play, play along to uh, guitar backing tracks, you know, just, just jam out, rehearse, do gigs. Um, it's only ever been fun. So yes, a lot of practicing, but not in the, I guess, way that sometimes people picture it, you know, like strict teacher or you know, ruler hitting people in the knuckles or anything like that. If right. it ever stopped being fun, I wouldn't have done it.
0: It wasn't like that drum movie where the guy is uh, playing the psychological games.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then I guess uh, because I was uh, self-taught, I never had to deal with any uh, psychotic teachers or anything like that. <laughs> That's
0: Good, good. What kind of music do you like? Like, do, I, you know, obviously you, you you couldn't be in a in a hair metal cover band without digging that music. But what, like, what what would you? How would you describe? your interest in music and what you like to listen to and what you like to play mm-hmm.
1: yeah i mean i start get started getting interested in music you know around again this this uh, 1984 1985 time and like most people the music of that era really imprinted itself on me so in addition to all the you know hard rock and you know my favorite guitar players you know eddie van halen and slash from guns and roses i mean i really also very much like liked prince you know, in that hmm. in that era, I think when I was about 13 or 14, I pretended not to. But now I think I can admit that uh, <laughs> that, I, that I love Prince. Um, I really got into, you know, Public Enemy in the late 80s. Like, again, a lot of I think rock people gravitated towards some of the the stuff that was happening in rap and hip hop at the time. And then because I was right in between age wise, the musical history has kind of created this 80s rock versus grunge 90s rock where Nirvana came along and killed all those bands and my sense is that that's not quite the way it felt at the time it really felt much more like a lot of the albums that a lot of the those bands were putting out by the early 90s were no longer their best work um that their best work was really behind them and the stuff that you know Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and and um even Guns N' Roses in the early 90s um what they were putting out was really great and it never felt like I was rejecting any of the 80s stuff it felt like rock was you know very much still alive and I loved playing that and some of the influences from then or the ones that didn't quite become big like the grunge groups but i loved uh, faith no more i loved fishbone i loved primus who managed to get a little boost at a south park uh, somewhat more recently not re- recently but somewhat more recently um, so there was this whole wave of something like heavy alternative groups that came along in the in the 90s that i loved also um, then i kind of stopped listening to new music for a pretty long time which i think is a Pretty typical. I mean, I want to say Boomer thing, but you know, we're as as you mentioned, we're, we're Gen X, but Boomer can be a mindset too. Um, and then uh, I, I tried very much, somewhat more recently, to start listening to some of the you know newer rock groups uh, and there's there's really a lot of great stuff out there it's hard to say what's going to happen with it because you know rock is definitely more marginal than it was in the 80s and early 90s but that doesn't mean there's not a lot of really good stuff going on um if anything my uh, teenage kid has introduced me to uh um, i don't know how but they found me we went and actually saw them a couple of months ago it was a great show uh mother mother you know other other kinds of i guess you'd call them alternative rock now but it just sounds like you know 80s influenced rock
0: (laughs) yeah yeah, I feel the same way. I I stopped listening to music in the early 90s, you know, as a as a keeping up with the current kind of thing. And then, you know, a little later, I was, you know, kind of picked up some somehow I got really into Blink-182 and and I'm like probably in the top 0.2% of Tom DeLonge fans in the mm-hmm. world. Like I'm obsessed with him and the way he creates music. But I think, you know, along those lines what I like about Tom DeLong is not that he is just the founder of Blink 182 and has done so well, but that his creativity goes across so many different avenues from books to film, to, to, you know, television shows, pretty much everything. And I, I felt in terms of my own cre- creativity, I have no musical ability, but being a writer and being a professor gave me another Avenue and I kind of I think that probably is a f- an outlet that you enjoyed and, and have built, because I know not only do you teach, but now working um, in the Finch Center for Teaching and Learning, you're helping other people learn how to teach, and, and mm-hmm. that's a creative skill as well. Do you, do you feel a sense of creativity there that, that relates back to the music?
1: Yes, absolutely. And related, I feel a sense of something like performance as related to teaching that a number of the instructors that I work with who are really, you know, again, we use rock star as an analogy, but not, not always necessarily. In this case, a lot of them are musicians and former musicians. They're very comfortable being in front of people and using a persona or their body or their voice in a way that works really nicely for, for teaching. Even at the same time that, you know, I would consider myself largely an introvert. I think a lot of people in higher ed are introverted, but being an introvert and performing are absolutely not mutually exclusive. So it's always been helpful. And when I first started teaching, it was actually extra important to me to put on the right clothes for teaching. You know, I bought a lot of corduroy, and, uh, you know, tweed jackets and uh, and stuff like that, because I wanted to make sure that I was something like what cosplaying the job that I actually had. <laughs> um, and now with the, the 80s tribute group, that's the same thing, you know, it's full wigs and spandex and tiger stripes and the whole thing and putting on that outfit before I go on is really liberating, because then you know, I get to lean all into the Persona, it's it's great, and and we can and we can do the same thing with many of the roles in our lives. I mean, I guess sociologists have been talking about this for about seventy years now, but maybe the culture is just catching up now.
0: Yeah, I was. I mean, this is going to sound um, absolutely bonkers, but I'm going to share this with you anyhow. I, I I left academe. I'm working for a company that does diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting and product work and we we publish books and i do the public relations and the publications but we are a hybrid operation so two days a week we're in the office and we so we have this new office building um for some reason in the lobby and in the, in the bathrooms they play a strict diet of like deep cut 80s and 90s and across the board it could be hair metal, it could be like the Madonna wannabes, all those songs. And as I was preparing to to speak with you the other day when I was in the office, I was just thinking if I could zap you into this bathroom, which I know sounds very weird, I I can sing along with the lyrics to a song that I legitimately have not heard since 88 you know, 90, you know, it. it, it it's amazing that, that those of us who grew up our, our formative years were in kind of that Prince pop, you know, the stones are still kind of making music. Classic rock is huge. It, it's, I, I wish I remembered writers the way that I remember mm-hmm. songs, you know,
1: Yeah, no, it is. It is really amazing. And and my experience with hearing those songs come back has been not at, uh, you know, let's say my office place bathroom, but the uh, local, you know, St. Louis uh, supermarket chain, Deerbergs. Every time I'm in there shopping, they're playing like Rat and Guns N' Roses and like... (laughs) A, I guess I'm the target demographic for this now in the supermarket. This is uh, not not the rebellious music that I still imagine that it is. Uh, including again at these uh, '80s rock tribute shows, when it's not in a bar or a club, when it's outdoors at some of the country days kinds of things, fairs that we've been playing all summer, there are lots of kids there, and it's 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 interesting the way in which given enough time, almost anything that's, you know, subversive in its own era turns into children's music.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've got to, I've got to ask this just a quick one. What, what song that you all play really makes people go bananas? Is there um, one that's I, like your, your true tried and true every single time you get them, get them going?
1: Oh yeah. De- definitely the, the Bon Jovi stuff, the uh, living on a prayer. People still go bananas every single time we play living on a prayer so much so that, you know, we rely on the audience to kind of sing the last chorus. Um, and, uh, every time we we stop and throw it to the audience, like the whole audience sings along and it feels amazing. It feels great. It doesn't need to be my song. You know, it feels like it's all of our song at that point.
0: That's awesome. I just got goosebumps whenever you said that I, (laughs) I saw, I saw Bon Jovi twice. And the first time I saw them, I slept outside in the snow to get tickets the next morning at the national record mart in our local mall and so anybody under the age of 48 is not going to understand that sentence any Mm -hmm. part of that sentence except (laughs) slept in snow but i think it was uh, you know pretty legitimate for certainly for those of us who are out in the out in the sticks um during the 80s to to get tickets
1: yeah and and i do think that the a lot of the academics that are interested in rock music you know particularly from the era do shy away from you know this whole genre they're more into you know the clash and punk and the post punk and that appeals more to the academic sensibility but i am really very populist in my <laughs> musical taste and if anything you know somebody like bon jovi you know if you read the Lyrics, which I think is relevant for the door stuff also. You know, he uses a lot of cliches and he uses a lot of obvious rhymes, and on the page, it does not look like poetry, but it's not intended for on the page. You know, it's intended for this really live, visceral, community, communal, sing it out loud. And one of the really interesting things about even a lot of the cliches of, you know, some of the lyrics of this stuff is that. Part of the reason it's a cliche is because people really feel it. They really relate to it. It's interesting to me that in some ways I, I would love to have seen Living on a Prayer, which is certainly a big song. Like, it's not like it wasn't. But that to me is what, uh, you know, Don't Stop Believin' should have been. Um, Don't Stop believing is a little vague, a little off. It's fine. It's a fine song. We do that one also. I think the Bon Jovi song goes over better live because, you know, it just, it really, it, it puts... Uh, again, some real emotions on that that feeling. I mean, I don't know if there have ever been any truer words spoken uh, than uh, we've got each other, and that's a lot. Well, well, we'll we'll give it a shot. I mean, that's that's as real as it gets, even if it sounds funny to say it out loud.
0: No, I agree. I agree. The the hearing that song can take me right back to a moment where that it felt like that's all I had. You know, at that point in my life, being a you know, I think it's. Hopefully, as people like you and I age (laughs) gracefully, more Gen X kind of, you know, if I would have stayed in academe, I probably would have started a uh, journal of Gen X studies, (laughs) because that's how much it means to me. Like, I am a tried and true Gen Xer. and. I tell my Gen Z daughters all the time that I weep for their generation because I just don't <laughs> understand them at all. But, you know, I know that's that's not the, the point of why we're here, but um, certainly uh, you touched on it. And one of the things I want to talk about, you know, from your perspective as a guitarist is The Doors. Um, you're a literary uh, critic and scholar. And so I thought talking about The Doors With somebody like you that has such multifaceted skills might give some insight into you know certainly like what's going on the you know the doors have nine million monthly listeners on spotify i mean i think i saw a statistic where their songs are played like something like half a billion times a year i mean it, it it's almost as if and i and i wrote this the other day to somebody you could be a a fan of music now and because of the reissues and the concerts and the rarities, it's almost like the Doors are still making music. What, what do you feel about them or what, what do you think they tapped into that, that allows them to, to stay popular after, you know, it's been 50 years since Morrison passed away.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things that's really interesting about talking about music now, I mean, including or maybe even especially music from 50 years ago or as recently as 20 years ago, uh, is just the way that younger people, you know, college students, my students experience it, which is that I don't know that they think of the doors as being 50 years ago the doors is just a genre it's part of streaming music has largely become decontextualized you know in part starting with you know just mp3s and uh, napster and then through youtube and now at this point um it's just playlist stuff i don't know that they're really thinking about it in the same way that i think pre-internet we were largely forced to think about it um like i very much associated the doors with the late 60s and maybe the early 70s. And when I was younger, I didn't particularly like The Doors for that reason, because that was, you know, previous generation stuff. Uh, you know, I think uh, Morrison died the year I was born. So clearly, I can't relate to any of this. I mean, meanwhile, it was only 16 years later, as opposed to, you know, 50 years later. But at the time, these these uh, decade distinctions seem to make a bigger difference to me, whereas I, I don't know that they do now. I think that all music being available instantly in this way has had a lot of tremendous benefits, you know, in terms of the access, availability, way in which, you know, people are able to have these much more diverse tastes, as opposed to, you know, fans in previous decades arguing about, you know, Beatles or Rolling Stones, you know, folk or rock, Metallica or Megadeth. Like, to most people at the time, the distinctions between those things are negligible, but to the fans, they're they're like willing to kill or die over these things in ways that uh, you know music listeners today, you know, college-age students, I think don't relate to even a little bit. I mean, it's just it's it's all streaming, it's all available, why not? Um, I think one of the reasons that I didn't take to the doors also was because Robbie Krieger, which I know we're gonna talk a little bit about guitar, um, is not particularly a guitar hero. He is a very understated player. If you were to sort of name the members of the Doors, I would put him third, you know, after first, you know, Jim Morrison is the absolutely gigantic persona. And then Raymond Zarek, who is really creating all of these very memorable textures and melodies. And then, you know, you got uh, Robbie Krieger, who, you know, i got got my guitar with me. So he's, you know, he wrote Light My Fire. And yet I think everything that everybody remembers about the song is largely the vocal line and the keyboard line. He's out there doing this little... Very subtle, understated chord changes. I mean, really, definitely not the kind of stuff that, uh, I mean, around, let's say, contemporary, I'm just adjusting my amplifier, you know, you got these like... not doing any of those kinds of like big leads, big rhythm parts. So, you know, you contrast him with, you know, I'm thinking especially Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix. Um, they're really doing very different things, even though now they would all stream under what classic rock or 60s or something like that. Um, so I really gravitated towards the guitar heroes. And now later coming around, I'm like, OK, he's actually doing some very interesting stuff here. You know, he's not even really a rock guitar player. He's kind of this flamenco, jazzy guy had to learn to play with a pick to play the rock music. He's got this absolutely outsized personality that he's happy to be the sideman for. So it is, it's interesting to put them aside some of their contemporaries and notice that they're, they're doing something arguably very different.
0: Yeah. And I would agree with you. Um, it's interesting. Kr- Krieger talks about, and he's talked a lot about the doors. I mean, one of the things I find fascinating in doing this book on the doors and Morrison and the kind of the death days of the sixties and the move into the dirty seventies is with Morrison's death, the rest of the doors were almost, um, some kind of weird diorama where they're stuck in time because the doors in that moment, late sixties are arguably, um, The second, I mean, the Beatles were so far ahead of everybody, but they're so they're arguably the most popular, most important band in America, in that moment. And when Morrison dies, it takes a little bit of time. The doors come through a rebirth. It's almost like Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby. It took some time to reborn, become reborn. And then those three guys left over had to talk about Jim Morrison and that. Five year span, seven year span, whatever you know, five to seven year span for the rest of their lives. You know, Krieger and and Den, and Densmore are in their seventies, I believe, right around there. Um, it, it had to be strange for them, uh, and so Krieger, as I've been listening to him, he he talks about playing back and f- like almost trading with Morrison, like knowing that the best way to make the band better was to do this little give and take with Morrison. So Morrison sings a line and you hear Krieger just kind of sneaking in behind him. And it seems to power the song. I will say though, in other in other songs, um, like Five to One, Krieger, there, there are a handful of songs where he does play Guitar God. He just kind of blasts one out and you go, whoa, where'd that come from? Like you had, so, so it's interesting that I think maybe in a different band, Krieger was also very laid back Californian. So what, I don't know if it was in his personality to be, you know, as we would perceive, you know, Eddie Van Halen or, or in his day, Hendrix, but he knew Hendrix, he was friends with Hendrix. So it's, it's very interesting, all the dynamics around that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, no, right. I mean, there are, Certainly, I mean, for me, one of their signature songs is something like Break On Through, and that's arguably one of his more, you know, guitar centered songs. But it's interesting to contrast it to, you know, again, what Led Zeppelin or, or Jimi Hendrix were doing. So you've got this. And meanwhile, you know, at the same, r- relatively around the same time, you've got a very, very similar riff from Jimmy Page, which, I mean, there have been lawsuit issues, so I'm going to ignore that <laughs> you got this very different kind of sound and it's interesting too to talk about the relationship between the guitar player and the singer which is one of these archetypal rock things um you know so led zeppelin kind of creating this mold of the the singer and the guitar player vying for you know who is really the center of this band who's really the leader of this band as opposed to again Robbie Krieger writes light my fire and then basically hands it over to Rayman Saric's like you 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 can you got this let's let's put a uh, great keyboard intro and a three minute keyboard solo in it and he gets to his solo but it's a very understated kind of solo I was gonna do a little bit with a backing track on this too so we got this uh if you can hear it there we go so he's doing this uh kind of very unrock-like thing Like pretty much, that. like not not really leaning into the blues scales the way Hendrix or uh, or Jimmy Page would. He's playing he's playing in the in Dorian mode, which you don't come across that often in rock. It's that little kind of uh, unusual notes. And so I was thinking as I was you know prepping for this this podcast, like what would it have sounded like if like Jimi Hendrix had played that solo? And it would it would sound very different. Maybe something like this. let's, let's switch the sound again. And, and pretty much Robbie Krieger resists doing anything like that at every turn, which to me is, again, kind of, kind of fascinating. The zeitgeist was really leaning towards, you know, this. Uh, oh my God. And then he doesn't do it, even in uh, Break On Through, when he gets to that little slightly rougher chorus.
0: So there's
1: so something along those lines. You know, again, a, a rock player, or a heavy metal player, 10 years later, it would have been. Uh, just do, doesn't doesn't do it. Very light touch. That riff in the chorus could have been the whole song if a heavier rock band had done it. And instead, the thing's two minutes long. Jim Morrison really belts it out on that one. Unlike some of his more understated stuff. And uh, it's. I mean, that's pr- probably my favorite Doors song. <laughs> as yeah. a result,
0: that's interesting. That um, that was great insight, Jesse. I really appreciate that. I mean, that you you really that that was almost like a a perfect encapsulation of the transition from the mid sixties through the eighties. Like the, the idea of the way the guitar is played and you're right about Krieger. He backed off for the good of the band because he knew it's also interesting. He was the last door to join of the original. He was the youngest and he had, Certainly, he rarely says it, but you can feel that he had a big brother, little brother relationship with both Morrison and Manzarek, and it really was Manzarek's band. But Manzarek was uh, modest enough. I don't know. You, you maybe you could give some insight into this because you've created music from from nothing. But Manzarek wasn't a control freak. He, you know. Densmore's influence, Krieger's influence, were always there. Manzarek, but man, it's—I get the sense that Manzarek was the boss. You know, when when somebody had to make a decision, he was making that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's a very interesting dynamic.
1: Yeah, and it, even in my own, you know, limited experience of being with bands, you know, I've been in a lot of bands. I've been in bands for years. I'm in two different bands now, but of course, I never made it to anything like doors level. I mean, you know, only a handful of bands have, but also, you know, not national touring. I never did anything like that. Even then on the levels that I've had it, there are so many interpersonal problems, arguments, squabbles. I mean, it really is like a marriage between however many people in the the band, you know, four people, five people, you know, marriage is complicated enough with two people. Now you sort of throw in like four and five people. The only way that it really works is when people are able to kind of step in and out of the spotlight or seed the spotlight. And then even again, like a group like Van Halen, they could only keep it together for so long, you know, before before they they imploded, like like most groups. I guess you've got your occasional U two, where the four of them just get along. But again, it it seems to stem from a lot of willingness to let the singer take a lot of spotlight. And I, I want to say that's probably an accurate assessment of the Doors too, that the other the other three of them were willing to, you know, let Morrison burn really, really brightly, in some cases to the detriment of the band, you know, like having a singer regularly with getting arrested is good publicity, but not necessarily good for the the greater good of the group. Um, Of course, he died. I don't know if you have greater insight into his death. I still think of it as mysterious circumstances. Is that still all anybody knows or did you you uncover anything?
0: Yeah, I think it's it's mysterious circumstances. Um, He you know, when we think of heroin today, we think instantly of injecting it into the, into the bloodstream, but he had a lifelong aversion for needles. So when, when, when Jim Morrison got in trouble, it was fueled by alcohol and then somebody would give him something else. And so there are a lot of times if, if you were plotting it like a mathematician, you would say, okay, so this really bad behavior, was because somebody gave him a handful of pills and he swallowed them down because he had no uh, you know no ability for stopping especially when he was drunk and so my sense is that somebody gave him something or a series of drugs that that caused him to die but it was always alcohol infused i mean he was thoroughly marinated and I think like, like Fitzgerald, the prodigious amounts of alcohol were going to kill him one way or the other. But I think the, the whatever he took in the maybe the 24 hours before they supposedly found him dead in the bathtub, that's what did him in um, from what I can tell. But... You know, one of the things that I talk about in the book that, that I'm excited excited in a in a historical recreation kind of way or a, an interpretive kind of way is that I pin Morrison's death on the state of Florida. And I think that the federal government aided and abetted because they were clearly out to get him based on what happened in Miami. And from that point, the FBI got involved, Nixon got involved. And the pressure on him, like he was already an alcoholic, but then the pressure of, you know, having his, his livelihood taken away, the possibility of somebody like Jim Morrison doing six months hard time in a state pen in Florida, that I think that's what, you know, took him off the rails. And so it was only a matter of time, but that's, you know, that's my, my thinking about it, you know, after... You know, it's been decades that I've been thinking about this, but, but I mean, so it's just one writer's conclusion, but that's where I would pin his death. Yeah.
1: And it's funny because I don't know as much as you do about any of these circumstances, but in the last really... I want to say even just six months, seven months, you know, I, I do teach a, uh, a course at Maryville that's about rock music. It's sort of a combination of, you know, literary studies, cultural studies, pop culture studies. It's not really a history of like, I don't give them quizzes about, you know, trivia or anything like that. I really just want them to think very globally about music, its context, its work, something like a reader response, you know, of, of their own. And one of the things that they really picked up on, and I want to say it's again, part of their, you know, the Gen Z culture is they, they kept noticing what, Arguably, it for a student would be all sorts of red flags and all of these lyrics. You know, like even going all the way back to you know Elvis. You know, I'm so lonely I could die, kind of stuff. Hope I die before I get old. All of this, they're like, you know, if, if a friend of mine <laughs> wrote this as in their journal or poetry, we would get them help. And the response for you know Morrison and all of these is the exact opposite. You know, you've got this unstable personality, and instead, give him more alcohol, give him more drugs. Let's see what he. Does it's very interesting in some ways to you know look at that 27 Club you know that that Morrison and Janis Joplin and Hendrix you know died very close to each other and then subsequently you know Kirk Cobain and Amy Winehouse and a whole score of others and realize how not only did people not help or not intervene how much they really poured gasoline on all those fires and it's really striking to me you know how plaintive these cries for help were um, in retrospect and how antithetical that was to the the rock and roll lifestyle that nobody really wanted to see anybody get better. Nobody wanted to get them off of alcohol, just the opposite. It was so, so from a, again, enlightened contemporary mental health (laughs) wellness standpoint, it is in some ways astonishing the way the music industry just really chewed up all of these amazing and talented people. And, you know, and for what? For, in the case of The Doors, like a handful of albums that now, you know, as you mentioned, live on in in posterity and still get all these, you know, these listens, which is great for the, I guess, surviving members, but maybe, maybe not even. They're still trapped in this little bubble. I mean, even the Beatles, for the most part, managed to go on and create all of this, you know, incredible body of work after the Beatles. I mean, you know, for a lot of people that still doesn't compare, but Paul McCartney's what is what he just turned 80 and he's still knocking it out out there. Um, And, and it's a shame it couldn't be all of them. Like the, the list of casualties is in some ways astonishing and mind numbing, but we've just accepted that part of the narrative of rock music uh, something that I wrote about in terms of Don DeLillo's novel, Great Jones Street, what what he referred to in that novel as the terms of the contract, um, or in, in White Noise, also talking about Elvis, um, that it's just we part of the deal that we that they accept that we make with them is that um, we don't want them to survive. You know, we we want them to have this you know stage of excess and decadence that really can only go in two directions: either death or Burning out in obscurity, and there's there's not a lot of other options for them. And if you look at all these figures, uh, a lot of them wound up burning themselves out and with death and through you know drugs and alcohol. I think the consensus now is that Hendrix died from uh, a sleeping pill overdose, but it was accidental. He was in England and he wasn't clear on the dosages and he took way too much. Um, so again, just the the fact that through all of their careers, people just, you know, see that they have substance abuse problems and see that they're having emotional problems and say, you know, it'd be fun, let's give this person more. Uh, is, is again, from a 2022, maybe post-pandemic trauma-informed pedagogy <laughs> standpoint, it's it's very, it's, it's really, it's it's shocking. And we, I never thought of it as shocking. I just thought that was that was how it is, that that's, that's just what you do. And then you get into the, the 80s metal, the, the hair bands, I mean, you know, like Motley Crue, where do you even begin? With a group like that, you know, Nikki Six apparently actually declared dead, Vince Neal committing reckless manslaughter, amazingly getting only a slap on the wrist, uh, you know, uh jail sentence. It's it's really something to to rethink, sort of like at the end of those, you know, like uh mind-bending movies where now we understand something that we had been seeing all along, you know, like you know, fight club and usual suspects kind of stuff. Through the lens of contemporary mental health, when we look at all of these figures, it is astonishing that not only did nobody help them, they really just led them even further down. And, you know, for what? Because they, they thought it was good for the music, good for the persona. It's what the fans seem to demand of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very astute, Jesse. And your, your students are looking at the world in a way that I think is, is incredibly interesting, because when I began this book like like most of my books and and you may have perceived this because you know me I think well enough to what i hope to do as a writer is bring these usually subjects people to life in a in a 360 kind of degree way so let, let's take them down off the pedestal and then address them as as human beings and what is the consequence of that and with Morrison, he would definitely be looked at differently. You know, in our era, if you like the Doors, and I definitely was a Doors fan, I idolized Morrison for all the wrong reasons. I, I love the music. I I'm a singer guy, and Morrison's voice hits me in somewhere in my brain that just lights all the lights all the lights up. Um, and so for me. But but it was the the drinking and the the hedonism and the the idea that my buddies and I in high school could say, let's have a Jim Morrison kind of night. And we all knew immediately what that meant. Like, let's just let our hair down, because we all had the long hair back then. Let's let it down and let's just see where the night takes us. And that for people that I knew, you know, five years ahead of me, five years after me, was very attractive. But today, when I look at Morrison, I have the same kind of reaction you do. So for the book, I talked I've talked to a lot of um, therapists, psychotherapists, because I want new readers who know who, they know the name Jim Morrison, they've heard the songs. I want them to have a 360 view of Jim Morrison as a human being. So I, I agree 100% percent with, with what you're saying and, and the decadence and, and how we cope with that now.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that you do see that in some of the songs and some of the music, again, something like Break On Through or The End. But in a lot of the other songs, he's arguably, like I suggested about the guitar players, not leaning in to the American blues the way everybody else seemed to be at the time. Which, again, that was my preference as part of why The Doors you know, weren't my favorite band. They were this outlier. And Morrison is, is the same way. You've got you know Hendrix, who came up. In this whole kind of r and circuit, you've got the, all the British post-British invasion, you know, Zeppelin and, and all the other ones. Who you know, Rolling Stones also loved American blues, imitated it, you know, really kind of obsessively, like real students. Like that's part of why they pulled it off so well is because they really studied it, note mm-hmm. for note. They obsessed over these you know rare LPs that they had to import. Uh, and meanwhile, Jim Morrison doesn't do that. He's still singing more like a '50s guy yep. you know elvis he's or a even, crooner even yep. early, he's a, he's a he's a crooner he's singing he's singing intimately to the microphone he is not belting it out i don't know if you wanted me to do some singing also i mean you've got sure. uh, you know like yeah he, he knocks it out and something like break on through but even then he's got these again sort of what crooner in try try to try to run that's i working working the key and try to run you try to hide you know, kind of kind of like that whereas Hendrix is not doing that. He's singing at the top of his range. Not excuse me, you wanna kiss the sky, like he's not crooning. Led Zeppelin doing the opposite. I don't know if it's going to overwhelm my. You need cooling, baby. I'm not fooling. I mean, like really, like Morrison not doing that. Just like understated, singing to the microphone, not singing to the you know the, the people in the, the rafters at the, the concert. It, it's really it's very interesting. And that strikes me as somewhat contradictory to the persona too you listen to the music and you might not expect that uh i think i suggested this previously elsewhere about somebody like ernest, ernest hemingway so you know you know if you bring up mr Earld, i'll bring up hemingway you know i i read something like a farewell to arms and i'm like reduced to tears <laughs> at this thing and then you look at the the man the persona the history the stuff he did and I'm like wow what a Jerk, um, but but that's not the the feeling. It seems like he really reserves his deepest wells of emotion for the literature in a way that he seems unable to in life. And you know, I get the same sense from Morrison that you, if you look at the lyrics on the page, listen to the the delivery, this sounds are like arguably a what thoughtful, sensitive person, which is something that I believe nobody has ever said about him. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's great, Jesse. I I agree with you hundred percent. I interviewed Elizabeth Bougerol, who's the lead singer of the, the jazz band, The Hot Sardines, and she's steeped in jazz history. And I threw it out there to her like, you know, is, is Morrison kind of... Sinatra was his favorite singer. I'm like, do you hear this? And she's like, of course. And she gives me a whole list of like, like how you speak about this to regular human beings, um, which is exactly the, like the way you just described it. I think even in a song like LA Woman, which I think your mind wants to think is like so ballsy and out there and forward. Now that I'm, what after what you said, I'm thinking of LA Woman and Morrison is holding back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a growl rather than Robert Plant's screech. It's not, you know, David Lee, it's not David Lee Roth on jump, you know, it's totally different. And and that's, that's an amazing point.
1: Yeah. I mean, jump, even as a throwaway example is a really funny one too, because it is such a party song, you know, and pretty much everybody who's heard this from the very beginning, we do that one, you know, live, everybody loves jump at different points. David Lee Roth suggested that this song was about a stripper and at other points suggested it was about, contemplating suicide and the fact that the lyrics kind of work for both of those things is really remarkable again or you take something like people are strange i mean this is again something that is a counterculture you know within its context kind of rallying cry but that absolutely speaks to i think again the contemporary you know online gen z mindset they're all sort of trying to embrace their idiosyncrasies all trying to find the way in which they're you know different um maybe that's the story of being young, and that just still appeals. But it does strike me as a more nuanced or sensitive version of that, you know, to suggest that, you know, people are strange, you know, when you're a stranger. I mean, I'm, I'm just reciting the lyrics at this point, which is a little, a little goofy. But again, as opposed to the wellspring of blues, where that's not quite what they're doing, they're not really sort of embracing this personal idiosyncrasy. They're looking for, again, like Bon Jovi, this communal experience or this feeling of hardship, whether you overcome the hardship or not. And Morrison's not really doing that he's really doing this arguably much more contemporary version of self-expression.
0: Yeah. I mean now that I'm listening to you talk and you're 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 causing me to think about so many things. I mean the influence of Bob Dylan at that time and then like you carry through to just after Morrison dies with Springsteen. I now that you're saying this, I hear more of Morrison in Bob Dylan than I do most of the contemporaries who you would say who are the singers of the five or ten bands that have sold as many albums as the doors and they're 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 so unlike. Mm-hmm. um yeah
1: yeah and I, I think i've been emphasizing two things that i now want to contradict myself on <laughs> one is in in some ways the the way in which you know i'm trying to emphasize that a lot of this music and you suggested through its continued popularity really has these elements of appeal that transcended time period. But I'm also thinking in terms of the context that after, you know, Morrison died, and again, the other the other people who died during that time, and the Beatles broke up, and Dylan was kind of sidelined what motorcycle accident making those basement tapes that he didn't want to let anybody listen to for a while, you get this whole rise of all of this other 70s music that really is very different from I mean, thinking starting with something like Black Sabbath, who overlaps with the doors a little bit, you know, they're taking something like the same lyrical approach that I just mentioned, you know, it's, you know, influenced by a counterculture, angry, idiosyncratic, but really leaning into the the darkness, you know, the, the despair, the, you know, like, I guess it's this still on the story again. You know. that, that for me was really, you know, like very powerful and influential when I, again, was first getting into music, probably just about the only group that wasn't from the 80s that I really liked was Black Sabbath because I felt like they sort of kicked that whole thing off. The other point that I wanted to get back to and contradict myself on was, you know, it sounds very sensitive to talk about how people at the time and of course today should be much more aware of and helpful to people who are obviously addicts who are suffering emotionally (laughs) as opposed to aiding and abetting them. But I recently reviewed uh, Dave Grohl's Quasi Memoir, um, the storyteller for the uh, online magazine Pop Matters, and I did give it a mixed review, in part because it is so relentlessly upbeat. The whole thing is just sort of like, wow, I got such a lucky break. Wow, I'm living my best life. Wow, I met Barack Obama. I met George Bush. I met Joan Jett. I met little Richard. My family's terrific. My mother's my best friend. My bandmates are my best friend. And it goes on and on and on. And I'm like, there's a lot of darkness in your past, dude. <laughs> like, where's where's the acknowledgement of any of this? And it's so peripheral. He barely mentions Kirk Cobain and essentially the implosion of his emotional life and career. He barely mentions the disillusion of his first marriage, his really not particularly good relationship with his father. Like you have to really read between the lines between all this celebration. And the result for me was, you know, good for him these are the elements of a wonderful life, but these are not the elements of a particularly interesting memoir. Like, wow, gee whiz, after chapter after chapter, I'm like, where's your overdose, man? Where are your struggles, man? And so that, of course, is you know, terrible of me as a person. But, you know, the one of the relationships, you know, as, as you're you know, a literature guy, you know, stories absolutely need and thrive on drama and conflict. And here's this guy who wrote this memoir, really very deliberately, it feels like, Cutting those parts out; those are the parts he didn't want to deal with. He didn't want to use this as a kind of therapeutic writing exercise to, uh, you know, work out some of this. He really just wanted it to be a series of celebratory anecdotes, which it is, and it's not that interesting for me. I mean, other people, will of course, love it. It was on the bestseller list. People love him; they love his personality. I'm going to guess that the audiobook, which he narrated, is probably a little more interesting than what it looks like on the page. But that was that was my feeling. Was you know, give me. Give me Jim Morrison <laughs> over this, you know. Like, let's what? What? Where, where's the fire here? You know. Obviously, he's passionate about the music, but just going from one happy anecdote, you know, like he thinks that he's not going to get to play with Iggy Pop when he's a teenager, but of course he does because that's the the nature of this memoir. Um, so yeah, so it, it really it's it's complicated. You sort of get why people didn't try to help them in the same way because it was a hell of a ride <laughs> for everybody. Um, you know, it was was terrific storytelling.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, Dave Grohl is uh, complicated in a in a strange way. Um, I had one of my best friends when I was in college. Uh, he'd grown up in the Maryland area, you know, listening to you know Black Flag before anybody knew who Black Flag was, and and in that punk scene that Dave Grohl was kind of in. And just growing up in D.C. in that time frame, in the D.C. metropolitan area, meant that you were exposed to things, probably that you were exposed to in Brooklyn, that I was never exposed to, but certainly a different lifestyle with, you know, D- D.C. in the 70s and 80s. I mean, it's it's not like now. I mean, it's it's a totally different ballgame, like Times Square in the 70s, you know, it's it's a it's it's not all disney shops you mm-hmm. know and so it's interesting that you raise that point he he did that show um he did like a storytellers kind of show where he went around and and wrote a song in a weekend and he but he'd explore the area oh I, I saw I, that yeah that I was loved, a, uh,
1: something highway what was that oh. yeah i yeah, that loved was, no, that was good yeah
0: loved the show until he came on <laughs> at the end and did like the whole song with i mean i remember the new orleans episode with Preserva- um, Preservation, um, pres- the guys from Preservation Hall jazz uh, group. And, and it was such an amazing show until Dave Grohl, kind of by his force of ego, just wiped everything, <laughs> you know, all the yeah. good of the program out.
1: Yeah. Oh, that was Sonic Highway. And one of the things that, again, I mentioned in the review is that I don't get that sense of some like cloyness from the lyrics. You know, some of the lyrics to the Foo Fighter songs really do get pretty deep. And emotional, and you know, something like "Everlong" is an extremely moving song. And it's interesting to me that he was able to separate that, you know, the, the, the emotional core that really comes through in his performances and in his lyrics, from this memoir that resolutely decides not to go there.
0: So, here's something that I want to uh, certainly want to talk to you about as we as we start to wrap down and, or wind down, at least. Um, I want to see you get your your thoughts on this. The doors are different than most groups because Manseric is essentially got a master's degree. Morrison graduates from college, which I don't, I can't imagine anybody really ever thinks about that. Morrison graduated from college and was actually, if you um, do some research, I mean, he was considered a genius IQ. I mean, this is this was not a guy who, you know, kind of came in off the street with with nothing going on. And Densmore and Krieger were both on the way to college graduation, and then they just got caught up in, in the music. So I think that sets them apart to some degree from other contemporaries. And then the second point is, the thing that strikes me to this day about The Doors is I don't know where it, where it came from. Like they had influences, but their sound is completely unique. It's as if they said, we're going to do something totally different on purpose. Like, I don't know if they stumbled into it, if it's because Manzarek was an organist, so that automatically made them different. But those two points, I definitely would love to get your thoughts on.
1: Yeah, well, I think it, it is around that time that you do start getting some of the this question about, you know, rock music being art and created by actually intelligent people. I mean, I think now it's, you know, we've got our... Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all these academic books being written about it. Nobody questions that in the same way. But, you know, when you go back to the 50s, the adult response to rock music, and some of this was really tinged in racism and classism, was that this, this is, you know, like, music for people that don't have any intelligence, that it's all, you know, all body and no brain. But then you do start getting, like, I guess the, what, Warhol-influenced groups, you, know, you get your Velvet Underground, and you've got the, the Who, and even the Rolling Stones, right? What is, what is Mick Jagger? He's got a Pretty fancy degree, um, and there's this kind of elevation. Maybe that's the wrong word because I don't want to, you know, denigrate the 1950s stuff. Um, but really, this this way in which the true middle class are getting much more involved in in music in a way that you can't really say about a lot of the 50s performers. They were largely, you know, rural or working class or country or African American, and and not necessarily uh, middle class um so that's so it is you see this really very interesting shift and that's around when rock music starts to get treated as art as as you know not not necessarily you know like disposable as garbage um so i, I that seems to be the trend maybe you, you know you could make your case in your next book about the doors unless you already did this in the book i haven't have not read it yet looking forward to it um you know that this is the beginning of the the college rock phenomenon that begins to happen i guess in the what 1980s where it's just a given that college campuses are hotbeds of indie and alternative music in a way that certainly wasn't the case in the 1950s
0: yeah that's a good point that that's a good point too now, now that you now that you bring that up because the doors and other bands started playing rock you know playing music at colleges more frequently you know certainly that was um more than just big arenas uh yeah. so that guess, yeah that's interesting
1: and the, the other point and this this starts to feel like a concluding point because this is something that i'm fascinated by and don't really understand i mean i, I want to call it something like magic i mean you know it's like I, I feel like music involves a little bit of magic i'm usually very very rational but you know you listen to these songs and one three chord song with a familiar melody line is boring generic you've heard a million times before and a different three chord song with a similar melody line is like transcendent it's art i mean you get stuff like that with like dylan or something like that where you know somebody else performs it not not hendrix or other things but just your you know your average person's like i don't hear what's so special about the song but in his hands in some of the masterpiece covers like wow but his songs are not complicated they use the same one, four, five, one, five, four <laughs> that everybody else was using. And I, I'm using that as an analogy for a lot of these groups, you know, so you take the doors, what you were just saying about the, I'll say alchemy, even though alchemy isn't real. So I'll just do chemistry. Maybe that's better. Uh, you take the Beatles. I mean, what here is just these kids that found each other in the neighborhood. Like it's in some ways it's baffling. <laughs> Does that mean that there are more potential brilliant combinations out there and it's just through good luck or bad luck that they come together? or don't come together. Again, something like, you know, some of my favorite groups, these these people just find each other through want ads, through locations, through mutual friends, and together they create this, again, this, this magic. How? It's hard to say. I'm not prepared to answer <laughs> that question. Um, you know, you sort of imagine these alternative histories where one person being different led to, you know, the group never making anything or some other group becoming big that never quite did it's just uh it's it's just remarkable when i think about the really the the magic of the same three chord song but one of them is you know amazing and one of them doesn't feel like anything or you know these four people who fairly randomly or situationally came together and they created this music that still to this day you know is is influencing people making people's lives uh transcendent
0: yeah that's interesting that's a good point too and and we haven't even gone into the mechanics of how bands come together and the rock, the rock machine, you know, I guess if I knew the answer to that
1: question, right, I would have been working for a company because that's what all the record companies were trying to do for all those years is bottle that or recreate that magic. And once in a while they could, but most of the time they couldn't, it needed to come together and then they would find it rather than create it or engineer it.
0: Yeah. I think, and I think the same thing about, um, there are actors and actresses. There are, um, writers that I mean you know I like what you called alchemy or chemistry with Brad Pitt I called it secret sauce or Mm -hmm. special sauce because how do you explain somebody like Brad Pitt or George Clooney in you know they're able to somehow transcend everything around them the the history even of Hollywood and and emerge as these characters uh
1: Yeah, yeah. The the,
0: the number of pieces, the number of particulate particles that had to form to make that, you know, supernova is -hmm. to me fascinating.
1: Yeah, I I find myself relying on words like numinous or (laughs) ineffable. I mean, these are these are very evasive terms.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's um, and uh, certainly, certainly with Morrison, you know, that there are a lot of pieces there that that you know, turn, turn into a fascinating hole. Have I, have I skipped anything? Are there anything, anything you were thinking about the doors or classic rock that we should pull through? Because I think, I think we've, we've, we've built a great little uh, fortress here and, and <laughs> but I don't want to, I don't want to leave out if you were considering something else.
1: Nope. I think we, covered uh everything i thought we might cover and then a couple of things that i did
0: not so that's pretty good that is good i um i really enjoyed you uh bringing the the guitar into the into the podcast as well uh so what what are you up to where can listeners i because i know once people hear this podcast they're going to want to um find you online on social media they're going to want to know more about your your band where can people find you
1: I am uh, blessed or cursed with being, as far as I know, the only person with my name. So it's J E S S E K A V A D L O. If you Google that, you'll find all of my contact information. You can send me emails, you know, at my Maryville address. Totally okay. I'm on social media. I have not figured out how to crack Twitter. I mean, if you've got any uh, any ideas, I really thought, you know, my my. uh, Tweets are so hilarious. Surely, I'd have a viral uh, smash by now. And and you know, I max out at about five or six likes in general. So uh, maybe that's not the way to contact me. Uh, I do have a new book that's out, Don DeLillo in Context, by Cambridge University Press, just came out. I'm the editor on that project. Uh, It's about a year overdue, but COVID pushed everything. All the way back, but I'm really thrilled. Uh, I, th- I think it will, uh, you know, be a, a tremendous addition for anybody who's interested in Don Lillo, Don DeLillo scholarship, contemporary literature, postmodern literature, and it's a pretty comprehensive book. The couple of people who have gotten their copy or picked it up, you know, kind of flipped through and like, wow there are a lot of chapters here. There are a lot of, and it's like, yes, (laughs) it is like all the angles. Um, So anybody interested, that's, that's the most recent. Uh, You had mentioned the Michael Chabon book that we collaborated on, which I, again, I feel very proud of. Uh, And my 2016 book about popular culture, uh, American popular culture in the era of terror, era of terror. It's even a tongue twister for me. Largely about the literal and metaphorical aspects of September 11, 2001 on pop culture and the subsequent 15 years or so.
0: Yeah, I would say, I mean, I probably, I I tried to keep myself in check here in this recording today, but I've read every, I haven't read the new DeLillo, but I will eventually. Nobody has it yet,
1: just just hot off the presses.
0: (laughs) Um, But I've read your other works, I've read many of the journal articles you've written. Um, I treasure our work together um and i'm just dumbstruck by uh, you know there are certain people you feel you have kismet and even though you and i have spent more time together virtually than in real life i just have always been an admirer of your work i i just i think you're the you're the best of us and uh I, I just, so I really, really appreciate this. I appreciate your insight. I appreciate what you've done in the scholarly community. Um, so, so I'm just a huge fan and uh, I, I can't say enough, but, but I should probably stop because I'll, yeah. I'll end up embarrassing you and I don't oh, want to do that. Well,
1: well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm excited to be, you know, have done this podcast with you, have not done a lot of podcasts, listened to a lot of podcasts, haven't participated. So this is uh, really exciting. For me glad to be here uh and again you you know you regularly demonstrate you know like you've got another book coming out and then when i'm just thinking of my idea for the next book you've got another another book coming out so you're you're extremely prolific and lowercase c catholic in the, the work that you do which is fantastic
0: well thank you and thank you for adding to my knowledge of of this 60 well 50s really 50s through '90s that we've really talked about, I, I think this has been super beneficial and and could could be really informative for a lot of different different audiences. So, thank you, Jesse. I deeply appreciate this, and, and for listeners out there, hopefully I'll be able to twist Jesse's arm to come back at some future date and talk about Stan Lee and pop culture, which he, we could also go on forever about. So, <laughs> yeah, do um, like those Marvel comics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So thank you, Jesse. Um, thank you to New Books Network listeners. Um, super excited for this episode, and we'll be talking again soon. Thank you.